This is Monday Morning QB, May 17th, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, the Nakba, the day 73 years ago, which Palestinians remember as the catastrophe. The greatest terrorism threat in this country is now posed by white extremists. Efforts to dismantle the pandemic safety net after one disappointing jobs report. And this has been a record year for anti-transgender legislation. Plus, this is our spring membership drive. Our fundraising goal is $500 today. Please call now to contribute. 1-800-222-9739. Go online to WPFWFM.org or cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Stay with us. Another bloodiest day yet rocked the Gaza Strip as Israeli warplanes destroyed homes and civilian infrastructure in the densely populated zone while the militant Hamas fired hundreds of rockets into Israel. The conflict was sparked last week when Israelis sought to evict Palestinian Israeli citizens from their homes in East Jerusalem and to block Muslim access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Islam's third holiest site, all as the holy month of Ramadan came to an end. The Biden administration has offered unqualified support for Israel, but dissent is growing among Democrats in Congress. Representative Rashida Tlaib is the first member of Congress with Palestinian roots. In a tearful floor speech Thursday, she said her grandmother still lives under occupation. Tlaib recounted the Nakba, the catastrophe, the day 73 years ago when Jewish mobs drove Arabs out of the homes they'd occupied for generations in order to establish the state of Israel and what had then been the Palestinian-British mandate. There has been no recognition of the attack on Palestinian families being ripped from their homes in East Jerusalem right now, or home demolitions. No mention of children being detained or murdered. No recognition of a sustained campaign of harassment and terror by Israeli police against worshipers kneeling down and praying and celebrating their holiest days, in one of their holiest places. No mention of Al-Aqsa being surrounded by violence, tear gas, smoke, while people pray. Can my colleagues imagine if it was their place of worship filled with tear gas? Could you pray as stun grenades were tossed into your holiest place? Above all, there has been absolutely no recognition of Palestinian humanity. If our own State Department can't even bring itself to acknowledge the killing of Palestinian children is wrong, well, I will say it for the millions of Americans who stand with me against the killing of innocent children, no matter their ethnicity or faith. I weep for all the lives lost under the unbearable status quo, every single one, no matter their faith, their background. We all deserve freedom, liberty, peace, and justice, and it should never be denied because of our faith or ethnic background. No child, Palestinian or Israeli, whoever they are, should ever have to worry that death will rain from the sky. 
How many of my colleagues are willing to say the same, to stand for Palestinian human rights as they do for Israelis? There is a crushing dehumanization to how we talk about this terrible violence. The New York Post reported that Palestinian death roll reported the Palestinian death roll toll as Israeli casualties. ABC says that Israelis are quote killed while Palestinians simply quote die as if by magic, as if they were never human to begin with. Help me understand the math. How many Palestinians have to die for their lives to matter. Life under apartheid strips Palestinians of their human dignity. How would you feel if you had to go through dehumanizing checkpoints, two blocks from your own home to go to the doctor or travel across your own land? How would you feel if you had to do it while pregnant in the scorching heat as soldiers with guns controlled your freedom? How would you feel it if you lived in Gaza where your power and water might be out for days or weeks at a time? Where you cut, were cut off from your, the outside world by inhumane military blockade. Meanwhile, Palestinians' rights to nonviolent resistance have been curtailed and even criminalized. Our party leaders have spoken forcefully against BDS, calling its proponents anti-Semitic, despite the same tactics being critically critical to ending the South African apartheid mere decades ago. What we are telling Palestinians fighting apartheid is the same thing being told to my black neighbors and Americans throughout that are fighting against police brutality here. There is no form of acceptable resistance to state violence. As long as the message from Washington is that our military support for Israel is unconditional, Netanyahu's extremism right-wing government will continue to expand settlements, continue to demolish homes, and continue to make the prospects for peace impossible. 330 of my own colleagues and Democrats and Republicans here, 75% of the body here, signed a letter pledging that Israel shall never be made, made to comply with basic human rights laws that other countries that receive our military aid must observe. You know, when I see the images and videos of destruction and death in Palestine, all I hear are the children screaming from pure fear and terror. I want to read something a mother named Iman in Gaza wrote two days ago. She said, quote, tonight I put the kids to sleep in our bedroom so that when we die, we die together. And no one would live to mourn the loss of another one. The statement broke me a little more because of my country's policies and funding will deny this mother's right to see children live, her own children live without fear and to grow old without painful trauma and violence. We must condition aid to Israel on compliance with international human rights and end the apartheid. We must, with no hesitation, demand that our country recognize the unconditional support of Israel has enabled the erasure of Palestinian life and the denial of the rights of millions of refugees and emboldens the apartheid policies that Human Rights Watch has detailed thoroughly in their recent report. I stand before you not only as a congresswoman for the beautiful 13 District Strong, 
but also as a proud daughter of Palestinian immigrants and the granddaughter of a loving Palestinian grandmother living in the occupied Philistine. You take that and you combine it with the fact that I was raised in one of the most beautiful, blackest cities in America, a city where movements for civil rights and social justice are birthed, the city of Detroit. So I can't stand here. I can't stand silent when injustice exists, where the truth is obscured. If there's one thing Detroit instilled in this Palestinian girl from Southwest, it's you always speak truth to power even if your voice shakes. The freedom of Palestinians is connected to the fight against oppression all over the world. Lastly, to my city in Palestine, Ashanik, and a wake of Hannah, I stand here because of you. Thank you. Representative Rashida Talib of Michigan speaking on the House floor Thursday. Throughout the day today, WPFW presents Memory and Resistance, Nakba 73, a commemoration of today's 73rd anniversary of the day Palestinians remember as the catastrophe. Domestic terrorism was the focus of a hearing on Capitol Hill last week. Testifying before the Senate Appropriations Committee, Attorney General Merrick Garland told lawmakers that the greatest domestic threat facing the United States today comes from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, and specifically those who advocate for white supremacy. Also last week, we learned that the Department of Homeland Security has created a new program aimed at preventing individuals from radicalizing to the kind of violence that can lead to domestic terrorism. So what would that take? Some insight can be gained from the latest episode of the podcast series, Sounds Like Hate. Sue Goodwin reports. Sounds Like Hate is a podcast series from the Southern Poverty Law Center, hosted and reported by journalists, Geraldine Moriba, and Jamila Paxima. As described on its website, it's an audio documentary series about the dangers and peril of everyday people who engage in extremism and ways to disengage them from a life of hatred. One of the issues they focus on in Season 1 is the recruitment strategies used by hate groups. This came after the Southern Poverty Law Center gained access to secret recordings of the militant neo-Nazi organization, The Base. They reveal how the organization recruits its new members. One of those recruits is now 18-year-old Tristan Webb, and he is the focus of the first episode of Season 2 of Sounds Like Hate, which debuted last week. Susan Cork is director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, and she says the podcast offers a unique insight into why someone such as Tristan would even want to join a radical hate group. You know, one thing that we've found 
in terms of the path of radicalization is that people want to be heard. So radicalization often happens out of a sense of profound isolation and, and feeling that they're not heard. So there often actually is a willingness to talk if approached in the right way. So what's amazing about the series, I think, is that they have these very frank conversations with Tristan, who is the member of the base, as well as members of his family who you know, have these heart-wrenching conversations wondering how their son went down this path. So why did Tristan follow that path to the point where he actually tried to convert the family farmhouse into what the podcast describes as a whites-only compound where members of the base could practice paramilitary training and get prepared for the collapse of America? In the podcast, here's how Tristan describes his attraction to white separatism. I was researching into politics in general since a really young age um, because of the fact my dad was more of a uh, conspiracy theorist kind of guy. So I didn't trust the government at all or democracy. And I uh, kind of came to see that um, we needed something radical to change if they're lying about all these other things, then they're probably lying about Hitler and stuff. But, as we learn in the podcast, there was more at play, including an early exposure to Hitler. In the podcast, his grandmother, Carol Teagarden, describes how Tristan used to watch videos about Hitler with a close relative. I would go over there and they would have, he would have videos about Hitler, and Tristan would sit and watch him with him. Well, you know, I just looked at it and I went, how could you like Hitler? I mean, and he said he wasn't that bad of a guy. I didn't connect it to Tristan. Then I didn't think anything, I didn't think he, I didn't think anything at the time. I should have. By the time he was in high school, Tristan says he identified as a national socialist. He actually distributed pamphlets sharing his Nazi beliefs and asked fellow students to fundraise and join him in the National Socialist Movement. That got him suspended, but, as Susan Cork explains, with the base, he was able to find a home in a like-minded community. And then, you know, he said himself that felt kind of as an outsider and that he took on these ideas in school and I think felt rebellious about it when he found these other base members who were a little bit older and gave him a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. There were attempts to stop this radicalization. His family called on school counselors and even Child and Protective Services to intervene. But as Tristan explains it in the podcast, none of this was going to break his resolve. They tried to get therapists to talk to me. They tried to suspend me. They tried to do whatever they could to stop, you know, me, de-radicalize me and everything. And it just didn't work. It just made me uh, more secure in what I was doing. And it worked. I mean, I got a group of people around and got people to wake up. And here is where Susan Cork wants to make a very important point which is that, despite Tristan's claim that nothing could be done to de-radicalize him, that's just not the case. But what we do try to do in that episode is contextualize that, because that's not really true. Studies have shown that there are a number of effective preventative interventions. There is an ability for parents to 
learn more and prepare themselves to look for signs of radicalization and intervene. So while that was the view of Tristan, was that he was determined to pursue that path no matter what, and that, that may be true with him, but more broadly, I would like to share kind of a message of hope that it is possible to prevent radicalization, and it is possible to de-radicalize once someone's gone down that path. And to that end, the Southern Poverty Law Center has partnered with American University's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab to release a guide to help parents caregivers and educators understand how extremists are exploiting this time of unrest and targeting children and young adults. The guide is titled, Building Resilience and Confronting Risk in the COVID-19 Era. It provides tangible steps to counter the threat of online radicalization, including information on the new risks during COVID-19 as people spend so much more time online, and how to recognize the warning signs. The guide advises parents to ask questions about what kinds of websites and platforms their children spend time on and help them develop the critical thinking tools that will allow them to overcome radicalizing messages they encounter. And don't wait. Susan Cork says intervention often happens too late, as it did with Tristan, which is why she says parents need to act sooner rather than later in being alert to the earlier signs of radicalization. And and preparing your child at at an earlier age and setting the relationship for listening and and trust and providing the opportunities for the child to learn and to, you know, kind of understand and, and providing them alternative sources of information. Another suggestion the guide makes is to create a culture at home that builds a child's resilience to counter hate and extremism, a culture that values cultural practices and knowledge that are different from your own, a task that may be more difficult for some families than others. In all-white communities, it's harder because the natural interactions don't happen on a day-to-day basis, so it's incumbent upon parents to create opportunities for their children to be in, engaging with other communities in real-life ways. You know, I've done programs on building bridges around the world, and the thing that always makes the difference is, is the human connection, um, and you see people not as the other or a different race or somebody with a totally different experience than you, but you just see their humanity and you have a chance to work together and play together. And that is important for parents to seek out if it doesn't exist within their community. So what happens if it is too late and a child does become radicalized? An important thing here is for parents and caregivers to reach out and get help. Parents really need to feel like they're not alone, that the worst thing that can happen is for a parent to allow the problem to fester because they don't know where to go, that they feel ashamed, and that they they think that it will just go away. The best thing that they can do is to reach out to experts, advocacy groups, community support systems, their church. Another organization I'll mention is Parents for Peace, um, and that's a helpline for people who are concerned that someone close to them is becoming radicalized towards extremism parentsforpeace.org. Susan Cork, director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. To find out more about their guide to help children confront radicalization and to listen to the latest episode of Sounds Like Hate, visit splc.org. 
For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Conservatives weaponized a disappointing jobs report last week, with Republican-controlled states pushing to eliminate enhanced unemployment benefits. They argue that benefits have incentivized workers to stay home, creating a labor shortage that could spur inflation. But progressive economists say we shouldn't dismantle the pandemic social safety net over one unexpected data point. Reporter Chris Banger-Drowns has more. Economists had predicted up to one million new jobs in April, but last week's report recorded only about one-fourth of that expected growth. There was some good news in the data, namely a boost in leisure and hospitality employment, a decrease in long-term unemployment, and a rise in labor force participation as more workers started seeking work again. But coronavirus safety concerns and childcare needs kept thousands of willing workers off job sites in April. As vaccination rates grow and business restrictions are lifted, economists expect job growth to rebound from April, at least if conservatives can be prevented from cutting unemployment benefits. The conservative argument that April's disappointing jobs report indicates a labor shortage is disproven by a simple look at wage data. Elise Gould, senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute, explains how, in a labor shortage, we'd expect to see wages rising across the board as employers compete for a scarce amount of workers. That doesn't appear to be happening. If you think there's a labor shortage, then employers are going to scramble and they're going to bid up wages to try to get more people. They're trying to attract and retain the workers that they want. To get them, they have to pay them more or provide better benefits. We are not seeing that economy-wide. We are seeing in leisure and hospitality, it appears to be we are getting back on trend to what we saw pre-pandemic in terms of wage growth. So we did see some strength there. Not enough to move the the numbers economy-wide. And we don't know whether or not that will be sustained. But it is certainly the case when you think about tighter labor markets, that's what we want. We want there to be um, tighter labor markets so that workers do have more leverage to bid up their wages. But there are many reasons why workers may be staying out of the labor market right now. Obviously, we still are in a pandemic. Uh, We still have Uh, many schools and child care centers that are not fully open. Um, So there are reasons why people may be cautious. At the same time, what we saw in April was a pretty big boost in labor force participation, uh, particularly among men, among people who may be less likely to have some of those concerns about caregiving. And so I think that we have to look more deeply to see what is what is really going on. You mentioned this disparity, this gender disparity, and, and, you know, I think this increase in labor force participation rate is sort of a good sign, but the fact that it is so gendered is certainly not a good sign. And so can you just take a minute to discuss why women participation in the labor market is lower than, than men in April and maybe compare that phenomenon in the United States to other developed countries? Sure. I think that when we think about the kind of crisis that we're in for caregivers right now, 
the pandemic isn't leading the way in terms of showing us that crisis. We knew that we were in this crisis for a long time. Over the last 20 years, when we look at women's labor force participation, so the share of women who are working in the formal labor market, that has softened in the last 20 years. We had seen many increases leading up to 2000, then that sort of slowed dramatically. And that didn't happen in many peer countries. And when you look at what those peer countries do, what kinds of policies that they have that might have led to the continued increase in participation among women, they have better childcare policies. They have more affordable early care and education options for children, which frees up parents, disproportionately women, mothers, uh, to be able to work in the formal labor market. They have paid parental leave. Again, that allows more women to stay attached to the labor market. That's disproportionately impacting mothers. A lot of women are also doing caregiving, not just for children, but also other, other family members, maybe elderly parents, uh, maybe other, you know, a spouse or in-laws that are sick, siblings. They do more caregiving in the society. And so therefore, uh, if we had more policies like some of our peer countries do, other wealthy countries in the world, that that could increase our participation of women in the labor market. So, so you've written that the United States economy is still down nine to 11 million jobs if you account for the, the job growth that we should have experienced without the pandemic. That's a large number, obviously. And so I'm curious whether existing stimulus measures are sufficient to boost employment nine to 11 million jobs, or do we need additional measures like you know the, the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan that uh, President Biden has proposed? It's true, we are facing a very large job shortfall. I expect that in coming months, we are going to start filling that in um, as it becomes safer and safer for people to um, open up and, and return to the kinds of buying that they had done before. And that will boost employment because there'll be increased demand for goods and services. And that's how our economy works. You need more people to produce those goods and provide those services. So we will continue to see that much in the recovery plan that already passed has those important components in it, the continued unemployment insurance benefits, as well as significant relief to state and local governments, that will be a boost to the economy. But I think it's also important to remember that the economy we had before was not perfect. We had huge disparities. Uh, we had huge wage gaps by race, ethnicity, and gender in our economy. There were many things that um, held back our growth. And so we need to make those kinds of investments as we already talked about, the caregiving workforce, both uh, elder care and childcare. We need to make those kinds of investments in human capital and make sure that we are doing what is best for our society as a whole. And that takes money. We need to make those investments in the physical infrastructure. We need to make sure that we are as strong as possible. So when we think about getting back to the before times, the before times, we had a black unemployment rate that was higher than what the white unemployment rate is today. Nobody would think that white workers are celebrating what is happening in the economy when we have nine to 11 million job shortfall. So we shouldn't be celebrating what the black unemployment rate was then. So in making these investments, we will get back to the economy and make it back stronger. Sure, and in, in a more immediate sense, you know, kind of getting back to these enhanced unemployment benefits, would you still argue for an extension of those benefits beyond their early September deadline? And, and does this April jobs data make such an extension more politically difficult? 
I can only speak to the economics as an economist. Uh, the enhanced benefit of $300 makes a huge material difference to workers and their families, paying their rent, paying their mortgage, putting food on the table. That has been such an essential lifeline when so many workers are hurting, have been devastated by this pandemic. Again, we're talking about a shortfall of nine to 11 million jobs. We are not near recovery. We have a huge hole. To think that by September we'll have filled that in would be a mistake. And people need that money to make ends meet, as I said, but they also need that money to drive the economy forward. If they are spending that money on goods and services, that is what will drive the recovery. Lastly, you know, this is just one month of sort of an erroneous prediction, and so it shouldn't be overblown. But I'm just curious from your perspective, is there any talk in economic circles to possibly change or adapt how economists make predictions about employment to maybe be more accurate? I think there's a lot of volatility in monthly data, and we need to look at the longer term trends. And I think the Bureau of Labor Statistics is doing a great job collecting data from households, from businesses, and at turning points in the economy, sometimes, you know, you need to adjust. And I think that they are, are doing a great job and we just have to look at the longer term. We shouldn't pay too much attention to any one month's volatility. I'm sure there'll be revisions and let's keep looking at them month after month. That's Elise Gould, senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Do the ultra-wealthy profit from racial injustice in this country? They most certainly do, according to a new book, Rich Thanks to Racism, by civil rights attorney Jim Freeman who heads the University of Denver's Social Movement Support Lab. They gain their wealth through exploitation, then spend billions to keep people of color less well-educated, over-policed, and incarcerated, and in fear of constant deportation. They fought for a very long time to uh, keep from uh, public resources going towards, you know, low-income folks, people of color, working-class folks, um, so that they can reduce their own tax liability. So essentially they're, you know, <laughs> they found out that you can make more money when you dehumanize people rather than meet their basic human needs. But then also, you know, um, you know, law enforcement's a great example of this. They use systemic racism and tools like law enforcement to divide us, to control us, et cetera, um, and to prevent us from recognizing our common interests. Um, and really pushing back against the system in meaningful ways. So um, I think those are sort of three sort of easiest to explain ways, but I think there's others. So is this a story about racism or is it about wealthism? Well, it's both. Yeah, I mean, that's that's honestly why I really wanted to do the book. I mean, one of the big reasons, at least. I mean, you know, on one hand, you have these folks who are, very motivated by issues of wealth inequality and so on, you know, think about Bernie Sanders supporters and, and those kind of folks. And it's, you know, predominantly white folks. Um, and on the other hand, you have folks fighting against systemic racism. Um, but in actuality, you know, the, the folks on the other side of that fight are the same people um, pretty much. And so, 
you know, I wanted, I wanted folks who are really motivated by sort of economic justice issues to see that systemic racism has to be their fight. Um, but I also wanted folks who are, you know, involved in systemic racism fights to see, you know, who was actually funding these efforts and where that money was coming from and, you know, what it was going towards. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think it's both. How does the perpetuation of racial inequalities affect the wealth of the wealthy? Well, I mean, one is, you know, if our system of uh, systemic racism um, preserves our racial inequities, it's preserving the existing power structure. It's preserving those who um, benefit from it um, and, which, you know, obviously favors those who are ultra wealthy. Um, but um, also, I mean, the you know, a lot of the solutions to these efforts um, involve shifting where we put our public investment, shifting how we use our resources, um, shifting how we think um, government and society should be responding to people's needs. Um, and, you know, I think right now our society, pretty much the defining characteristic of it is that it is structured to allow for massive wealth accumulation at the expense of others. It's structured to allow for exploitation. Um, and, you know, the that's why I think there's such a strong backlash right now because in many ways, I think it's a soul, it's a fight for the soul of our country and, and folks who have benefited greatly from that feel very threatened by it. Um, and because, you know, they, um, I think they see that, you know, a lot of the hypocrisies and contradictions that have benefited them are being exposed um, in, in ways that could lead to a much more just and equitable and, um, and egalitarian society. Um, and that does not serve their interests. I regularly receive email notices from folks who describe themselves as patriotic millionaires. Is there such a thing? Patriotic millionaires. <laughs> um, I think it depends on what we mean by patriotism. And I think there are some different definitions that are floating out there now. You know, there's, there's been a very concerted effort over decades to define freedom as the ability for folks to uh, accumulate wealth and exploit others along the way. Like if you actually break down how freedom is defined by um, some very, very influential individuals and organizations in this country, that is, that's essentially what it amounts to. So what they don't consider to be freedom um, or policies that advance freedom are policies that keep more people out of jail and prison. They don't consider it to be freedom, you know, when um, there are policies that give people more control over their bodies or that, you know, um, that uh, give people rights to live, you know, the lives that they want in ways that, that don't harm other people. That's not considered to be freedom. What's considered to be freedom is when businesses don't have to deal with regulations that, um, that advance equity, when businesses don't have to pay people a living wage. Like, that's, that's freedom for those folks. And so there's a very perverse form of patriotism that's been, that's been created and spread. When you mentioned freedom or define freedom just now in, in the context of 
what it is to be uh, the path to wealth in this country, almost synonymous with it is exploitation. Is it possible to accumulate wealth and, and not exploit? Yeah, I, I, I certainly think that's possible. And the, this idea that um, folks who are fighting against systemic racism or, or folks who are in the social justice movement, that everyone is necessarily against, you know, um, people accumulating wealth. And, and, and I don't think that's the case. You know, someone having a lot of money in and of itself doesn't bother me at all. Um, it, it really doesn't. I mean, what bothers me is when that money is accumulated by exploiting other people and that money is then reinvested into strategies that hold other people back. So, you know, for example, if I get rich in large part because I pay my workers poverty wages, then that's a problem. If they have to rely on an assortment of public benefits just to survive, meaning the rest of the public is essentially subsidizing my wealth accumulation, then that's a problem. Or if after I become wealthy, I then use that wealth to support a variety of policies and legislation to protect my wealth, to protect my place in society. Um, but doing so means that I'm holding back the advancement of all the people who made me my money, the folks who work for me, the folks who buy my products, then that's a problem. So, you know, no, I don't care if someone has money. and I don't think that's, um, you know, mutually exclusive with um, living a life that doesn't perpetuate systemic racism. Um, but I do think that um, we as a society um, have to be much more careful about um, designing policies that don't allow people to accumulate and use wealth in ways that are exploitative, that keep families in poverty, and that preserve systemic racism. Um, and, um, and that, you know, again, that doesn't mean that everybody has to have the same income or anything like that, but it does mean that... Um, that we have to really acknowledge that that we're not attentive to people's needs um, in any sort of systemic way, and um, and our only real chance of building a more just and equitable society is if we do so. Aside from putting your book in everybody's hand, how do you get white people to see that their fight is also the fight to eliminate strategic racism? Yeah, well, I think we have to continue um, shedding light on these dynamics, and we need to continue educating ourselves and educating each other. Um, we need to continue to build. You know, I think the the solution um, to all these dynamics, if you had to sum it up in one word, um, is organizing. Um, and if I if I could say two words, it'd be organizing and democracy. You know, we we need um, a much more active democracy in which people are um, uh, contributing and uh, in far more ways because there's really only, you know, there's only one effective counterweight to the power of, of this kind of organized wealth. And that's the power of organized people, you know, to resist this agenda um, and advance one that's more favorable to low income, working class and middle-class families. We really need to build people powered organizations. You know, that, that really represents the difference between winning and losing you know, between having a powerful organized force pushing for change and merely having a large number of isolated voices in the wilderness. You know, there can be a million protesters out in the streets yelling about various injustices. But if those million protesters are a million atomized individuals, 
then whatever impact is created by their actions will quickly dissipate. But if those million protesters are members of organizations that can build off the momentum created by that protest and channel it into the positive social change, then we can start to, to collectively shift the needle. So in the book, I, you know, I, I put a couple ideas out there about how folks can get um, more organized in these efforts. Um, and, and so I would really encourage um, folks to, to um, if not check out the book, then at least check out the website where I also talk about um, some of these ideas, and that's richthankstoracism.com. The book is Rich Thanks to Racism. The website is richthankstoracism.com. The author is Jim Freeman. Thank you for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a record-breaking year for anti-transgender legislation. Much of this legislation is specifically targeting youth in the name of protecting children. However, there may be some contradictions in this point of view. Amara Evering has more. This year, state legislatures have been flooded with bills titled things like, quote, Save Women's Sports Act or Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act, or even the Promoting Equality of Athletic Opportunity Act. With names like that, most people would be in support. I mean, who doesn't want to protect children, or encourage fairness, or even promote women in sports? Well, despite their sympathetic titles, these bills are primarily focused on limiting the rights of transgender youth by restricting their ability to access certain medical care, participate in sports, and even limit curriculum in schools that address things like gender identity. According to a legislative tracker, anti-transgender bills have been introduced in 36 states, amounting to a record-breaking year of around 127 anti-trans bills in total. I spoke to Dr. Kareth Conran, Blatchford Cooper Research Director at the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law, about this flood of legislation. This legislation falls into two major buckets. One is about limiting access to healthcare for transgender youth that would affirm their gender identity. And the second bucket is about limiting trans youth's access to sports. In terms of bills focused on sports, many of them specifically target transgender girls and keep them from participating in women's sports teams in the name of being, quote, fair to other girls or protecting other girls. Dr. Conran believes this argument is contradictory, to say the least. The efforts to limit transgender youth's access to sports center on protecting girls and their right to access sports. And I think it's interesting that nobody is really thinking about how these arguments sort of contradict each other. Are they a threat or somehow render other people's rights less secure? To me, it seems more like an argument without much substance. And in many of these states, there is no substance behind these bills. According to the Associated Press, in most states, legislators couldn't even identify one example of unfairness when a trans girl joined a sports team, despite numerous studies from pediatricians and geneticists that say there is no reason to limit transgender women's participation in sports, especially at the high school level. Many states have made this their top priority. They claim these bills are proactive or, quote, preventative. 
But the only thing these bills seem to prevent is the participation of trans youth in school activities and possibly further alienating them. So this idea that legislators are trying to force transgender kids to live in ways that are misaligned with their internal sense of who they are, or to limit their full inclusion in sports, which is good for mental health and physical health, and we want all kids to be physically active. You know, I'm in public health, it just counters science, it counters medical research, public health practice, it really makes no sense. And it also increases risk of harm to a population that's already marginalized and extremely vulnerable. And Dr. Conran believes that bills that restrict access to certain medical care for trans youth is also detrimental. The bills that focus on trying to limit transgender youth's access to gender-affirming care, which is the standard of care for transgender youth, according to the American Academy of Pediatricians and the Endocrine Society. And interestingly, the efforts to limit trans youth access to care, the bills say that they're focused on like protecting youth. So protecting trans youth, right, from gender-affirming care, although the literature shows that it reduces risk of suicide attempts, suicidality which is a real prevalent issue among transgender youth. These medical bills range from things like legislation that would make it literally a felony for medical providers to give transition-related care, to things like banning medical treatment completely that would allow trans youth to transition, such as hormone therapy and treatments. Arkansas became the first state to do this. For many, this care is essential and will promote general well-being. Transgender youth, um, almost a third, report that they've attempted suicide in the past year as compared to about 8% of cisgender youth. We know that transgender youth, when we look at the literature, do better when they have supportive parents and when their gender is affirmed. With legislation like this, however, it's getting harder for trans youth to be in environments that feel supportive or affirm their gender and identity. These environments, rather, with existing legislation and violence, police their gender instead of affirm it. Gender policing is, I think like many things, a continuum that at one end I would say includes bullying or harassment. Continued efforts to try to correct or criticize somebody for being who they are. We see first lots more bullying and harassment of LGBTQ youth who are not the only people who are gender non-conforming, but who are more likely to be gender non-conforming in their appearance and perceived that way by peers than heterosexual cisgender people. But I will say anybody who's gender non-conforming is probably at risk of bullying. And it's probably, again, related to a core set of beliefs about what's socially acceptable in terms of what heteronormative um, behavior should be or how people should present themselves. Gender policing begins at an early age, at least at kindergarten. Kids police one another, adults police children. Legislation like this only further alienates and others transgender youth. Within the school setting, some of these bills have even attempted to restrict curriculum that addresses things like sexual orientation, gender identity, and even types of sex education. In Tennessee, a bill like this actually ended up passing. Dr. Conran believes that this has implications on both health and well-being. What I can say is that LGBT and questioning youth at this point may comprise more than 10%, if not more, of the adolescent student population. And making sure that education includes the needs and experiences of all youth who attend public schools seems like 
it would be in the best interest of everyone. When we did focus groups with youth, we asked them where they were getting information about sex from. And it turns out that if parents are talking to youth and schools are talking to youth, they look to pornography or they look to older partners. And so as somebody who's a parent, I would much prefer my child to hear about sex from me or if I'm not comfortable or don't feel equipped from school rather than from an older partner or from pornography. And I feel like if more parents knew that, they would be in support of having a thoughtful, comprehensive curriculum delivered at their schools. With all this legislation against her in curriculum, medical care, and sports participation, many are left just asking, why? Why target this community, and specifically young people? You know, I, that's a great question. Um, I'm puzzled, too, by the focus on the most vulnerable members of society. Youth are dependent upon adults for resources and support and access to things. It's also, I would just add, a fairly small population. You know, all of our estimates kind of central around sort of a 1% prevalence estimate. So the amount of legislation that's being generated to limit the rights of a very small group and to limit access to gender-affirming medical care when there are no victims there are no harms associated with access to gender-affirming medical care and great benefit in terms of mental health is a very puzzling choice of policy priorities. For Dr. Conran, this restrictive and discriminatory legislation is just another form of violence. At the core, of course, is a set of beliefs or attitudes that transgender people are not as fully human or worth the same amount as other people. I think that's what kind of undergirds the hatred that is expressed in sort of a white-collar crime way through policymaking or on the street um, through crimes that appear more visible. So yes, I would say probably at the core are the same sets of beliefs. Dr. Kareth Conran, Botchford Cooper Research Director, at the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. This segment is in memory of Iris Santos. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askiya Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe. Keep your social distance. Keep wearing your mask for now. You can still contribute to Monday Morning QB. Call 1-800-222-9739. Go online to WPFWFM.org or cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. <music>